Well, good morning, church. It's good to be uh, here with you all this very morning. Um, it's always a little fun to work with scans for the first time. <laughs> um, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to uh, Nehemiah 12, verses 27 through 47. Uh, as Brian mentioned earlier, my name is Rich Brown, and I serve as one of the pastors in our presbytery, in the Blue Ridge Presbytery. And over the last uh, 10 years, I've had the privilege of serving in a few different PCA churches, from Redeemer to even here at Mercy for a while as I ascend it, and uh, also as a pastor up in Charlottesville the last couple of years. And uh, it's just a privilege to, to be back here with you all. This was my home church for a long time as well. And uh, it's just such a pleasure to be part of uh, this community and to be able to bring the Word of God to you this very morning. So again, uh, if you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah 12, verses 27 through 47. And I'd like for you to hear the word of God for what it is. It is his holy scripture, which is forever true, given to us in love from our Heavenly Father himself. So Nehemiah 12, starting in verse 27, as we continue our series, says this. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zippur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nathanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them, at the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. Now the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshanah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of <clears throat> those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maaseah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elionai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with the trumpets, and Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohanan, Melchizedek, Elam, and Etzer. And the singers sang with Jezraiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. 
On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is the word of God. Let's, uh, let's come before him in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we are so thankful that as we have had the opportunity to open up your word, uh, we realize that it never returns void or empty back to your spot. So, Father, we ask that in this very time that we have to hear your word preached in the midst of a myriad of Hebrew names and events that were going on in the text that we just read, we ask, Father, that you would allow us to see your redemptive narrative for what it was. And Father, I ask that as your word is preached, that I myself, as a, as a vessel of mercy in your own hands, would simply get out of the way and rather be used by you to proclaim your word and let your word by your spirit do all the preaching, so to speak. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that you would prepare our hearts uh, to hear your word preached over us in love, knowing that you, O oh God, are a God of comfort and love, and with you, we have peace. And so we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, now, as we've approached the end of our series in Nehemiah, as we've approached this final last two chapters here, 12 and 13, it's interesting because in this very moment in our passage, amidst all of the names that we just read and a lot of fun Hebrew names to try to pronounce, as best as you can at least, um, there is one major point that seems to be the pinnacle of the passage. And it's right there in verse 43. And maybe you might have caught that yourself. <clears throat> See, Nehemiah adds with an extra added emphasis, the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. In other words, and, and picture this scene with me if you will. Exuberant shouts filled the crowded streets of that ancient city. The people here in recorded history had gathered together clapped their hands, danced with great uh, just vibrancy, danced with enthusiasm, and sounded the loudest of crashing cymbals, and were led in biblically rooted praise. They were overwhelmed with a sensation that was steeped in a deep, uh, soulful longing that couldn't help but be contained and then proclaimed. They were overwhelmed with that sensation, and their joy was as a result undeniable. For the Lord God himself had caused them to rejoice with a great joy, as it says here in our text. You see, with great anticipation, the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, reestablished, fortified. And the people of Israel inside those walls were now protected from God's own enemies. And now, after all that building up, nothing but a great big celebration was due them. 
But I have a question for us this very morning as we begin to dive further into the text. See, was there joy that we just read about derived from these circumstances alone? You know, these bringing together of all these people from around Israel and Judah and beyond. Or was there some far greater truth that was evident before their very eyes? Uh, Spoiler alert, uh, the answer is the second one. (laughs) There was a far greater truth that was going on. See, if their devoted worship was circumstantial alone, then we as believers under the new covenant in our own day and age, as we look at this text, we would see it as nothing more than a description of what once was. We would miss the entire point of the passage if we see it as just merely that. But see, if what fueled the worship of these people stemmed from a much deeper, deeply seated truth at that, then we have every reason as believers to take heed and to learn and to put into practice ourselves such ardent and devoted worship, which is our theme for this morning. So now, in order to uncover this truth, then, I want us to examine the text in light of two major facets that we see here in this text. First, in verses 27 through 43, we see the dedication of the wall. You can probably see that in your own uh, Bibles as well, with the division going on here in the passage. But then in verses 44 through 47, we see the dedication of the people themselves. Now, given that this text from the Word of God is given to us in the form of a narrative, I think it's so vital that as we approach this, uh, even in my preaching style this very morning, it's appropriate that we tend to this in the form of a story, a retelling of what happened. See, it's vital that we understand as we receive the news of this event, that we receive it as a record of what happened, but not just that. We need to receive it holistically. And I know as we've been expositing each passage of Nehemiah over the last several weeks, uh, we've begun to realize that we cannot not see this text now in light of the grander redemptive narrative of what went on. Otherwise, we will miss what was happening. See, if we neglect the context this moment here of dancing and singing and shouting will seem totally obscure to us. You know, why were these people dancing so loudly in the streets for all of Jerusalem and beyond to hear them? It just seems so absurd to us if we don't understand the why behind the what. Now, to put it in our own uh, context today, in our uh, day and ages where a lot of us are working from home and uh, we're using Skype and Zoom and FaceTime and all kinds of new technologies, to figure out how to communicate with people at a distance, uh, we're having to figure out how to uh, work with our interruptions and things that happen. And when you think about it, when you're Skyping somebody, if you don't know the context of what's happening, they might be at their house, for instance, uh, you'll be totally just bombarded by a little kid who runs into the middle of the the camera, of of the screen itself, and you'll be a little distracted by what's going on. Unless you understand, oh, okay, they're actually working from home. (laughs) Now, in the same way, we don't want to misunderstand the context of what's going on here in this passage. And we certainly don't want to misapply this. I hope that none of us after church this very morning will go off to downtown Lynchburg and start singing and dancing in the streets, for instance. Uh, That'd be a little weird to say the least. But joking aside, there's a reason behind the loud singing that we see here in this text, behind the otherwise obscurity that we face. See, as we read in verse 43, the joy of Jerusalem, it says, was heard far away, but by nature, it was a responsive rejoicing. 
And I want us to catch that. It's responsive. But the question is, what was it a response to? Well, to answer that question, I would invite you to actually go back all the way to Nehemiah chapter 1 and turn back there, if you will, even with me, uh, to Nehemiah 1. Because again, in light of the context, we see something so great developing before our eyes. See, in verses 1 through 3, here at the very start of our book, Hanani, one of Nehemiah's own brothers, along with several of the fellow men from Judah, came briskly to Nehemiah with news heart-wrenching news concerning Jerusalem. In their own words, it says this, the remnant here in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. You can hear the trembling in his voice. See, the Jerusalem, the former crown of the people of Israel, their pride and joy had been utterly desolated, exposed. It was in a shameful estate. Utter embarrassment before the face of the nations. What was once a place of vibrant worship unto their God had become a place marked by burn marks all along the wall. Destruction, a heap of ashes. Ashes which in that day signified nothing less than death. Jerusalem was dead, in other words. The people had sinned against their Lord and had neglected his covenant. Together with all the types and the shadows and the sacrifices, which all pointed to Christ, the mediator of that covenant, they had neglected the right worship of their God and so brought upon themselves the just judgment deserved. For their generations had sought viciously to oppose the God of their salvation. They sought to basically turn their backs upon their shepherd king. The visible people of God had, by and large, in other words, neglected the covenant of grace, and so were brought into captivity and desolation, just as the Lord had said would happen. Now we know from the news of such disaster in Nehemiah 1 that the prophet was literally floored at the news and the annunciation of these events, and he wept bitterly. His stomach just felt empty. He couldn't even tolerate food for days. For he recognized that Jerusalem, as he knew it, had died. His weeping and his mourning lasted for days just as it would in their own culture for the death and the loss of a loved one. Days went by, weeping and mourning. But here in Nehemiah 1, we see this moment of, of just exaltation. In verses 5 through 6, he cries out, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and who keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be opened to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. See, in other words, Nehemiah mediated on behalf of the people of Israel. He stood in the gap 
not as one who was holy in and of himself in any way, but rather as one who knew his own powerlessness in the midst of that situation, even at a distance of engaging with them. And yet he also recognized the sinfulness of sin for what it was and the destruction that sin had brought upon God's chosen people. But there was hope in this prayer. See, even in his verbiage toward the Lord God of heaven, the covenantal name of God, he cried out to the very God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew that God himself had promised to Abraham long ago that though Abraham was as good as dead in his own body, out of his own flesh would come the seed of Israel, so to speak, his people with whom he would have covenant. And Nehemiah pleaded with God on the basis of God's own mercy toward a thousand generations, the fullness of time to the people of God, that he would be faithful to them. And he would show mercy so quickly when they came and returned to him. He knew that the Lord was merciful. He knew that the Lord had sworn an oath that when rebellion would in fact occur, as he foresaw and foretold the people of Israel in the book of the law, that if the people of Israel would return back to him, he would gather them without any reservation. And by his own hand, he would bring in the outcast of Israel from among the children of men to worship and to dwell with him again. The goodness of God was revealed to Nehemiah in the midst of that deep sorrow that we saw. And as we know from the word of God, soon as you continue on in the story, he found favor with King Artaxerxes. Soon he was commissioned to return to Jerusalem and help to rebuild the wall. So Nehemiah continued to intercede for the people as time went on and as the book developed. He continued to intercede for them, being an ardent and devoted and committed prayer, which we read of throughout the book, his prayers intermittently scattered. As he established the leaders of the people, he stood directly between, even during the building of the wall itself, between those who were building, but also those who would fight and defend the worship of God to the death. In other words, God himself was seen as not only the builder and architect of his people, but also as the mighty warrior who fought over them. He was both a mighty refuge and strength, as the psalmist says, the one to whom the righteous one can run into and find safety. Now, over the course of the next 12 years of intercession, Nehemiah uncovered various injustices that were being done in the midst of the people of Israel, and so he established, in essence, church discipline in their midst, establishing that in accordance with God's righteous law. And he returned and brought the people back to the law. He urged them to walk in the fear of the Lord their God and so not become the taunt of the nations any longer. And with an acute awareness of the harm that sin had brought to them, he continued to govern them faithfully until the wall itself was complete finished, fortified. And soon after that, we read in Nehemiah that God's enemies were fearful once more. God had done a marvelous work in their midst among the nations, the Lord alone. See, from chapter 7 and onward, the right worship of God was then reestablished. As Pastor Brian was preaching the last few weeks, we saw worship being reinstituted for what it was meant to be. 
the exiles began to return to Jerusalem, the reading of the law of God was embraced, and the people confessed their sins before God and pled on the basis of his steadfast mercy. In Nehemiah 9, verse 6, hear their confession. They said, you are the Lord, you alone. See, God's redemption was preached before the people, and their desire for restoration was kindled all the more. In essence, they were saying, Lord, we know that you've restored us. We know that you've brought us back. Now do it to the uttermost. Do it all the way, O Lord. So he continued to do that. Soon the Levitical priesthood was reestablished. Elders were appointed by the Lord himself in chapter 11. And then earlier on in chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, we see the priests readying themselves for the service unto God and his people. And that catches us right back up to this final, very pinnacle, penultimate moment in Nehemiah. See, by God's own saving hand, all of Jerusalem had been reestablished to bring worship rightly to him. The great and mighty wall surrounding and protecting the holy city stood tall once more. And Nehemiah found it most fitting in that moment to then have reason to celebrate. And so he brought out two choirs and organized the whole thing as a worship leader. And he brought out two choirs onto the very pinnacle of the wall. One he dispersed along the southern end, all around, and the other along the northern end, which he even followed along with. In other words, the message was sent very clearly to those inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Lord is before you and behind you. He will protect you. He is your God. He has you. Because the Lord had done it. The Lord himself had raised back to life that which was once dead, just years prior. Sacrifices were then made in that day, for they as a people were unworthy of such protection, and they recognized it as such. They knew their unworthiness and the need for salvation from the hands of their enemies. But all of Jerusalem in this way, in this very text, bore witness to a kind of resurrection. So the wall of Jerusalem was dedicated. Their mourning had turned into dancing. And so as they dedicated the wall itself, they made known his name among the nations. The joy just resounded throughout not only Jerusalem, but even beyond. And it was heard as, again, verse 43 in chapter 12 says, far, far away. Joy was again known in Jerusalem, and the people dedicated themselves unto this grand mission to be about the praise of God's glorious grace, as Ephesians 1, 6 says. Now it's here in our text that we find ourselves transitioning now to the, the last half of this passage. See, if we observe the festal gathering and the pomp and the circumstance for just that, for just a celebration itself, we would surely miss God's redemption here in their midst. We know from Scripture that all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ alone. And Christ himself taught his disciples in Luke 24 that he himself is the very fulfillment of every part of the word of God. And all of scripture points to his death and also his resurrection. And so we as believers, if we do not see the glory of our King Jesus here in this text, friends, we will walk away only acquiring knowledge and not 
bowing the knee in worship, ultimately. We will not come to this text from a place of worship, but rather just, again, the acquisition of knowledge. But know this, people of God, and hear this, for this is part of the gospel. Christ himself is our wall of protection. See, Christ himself, like the wall of Jerusalem, was torn down, stricken because of our own iniquities. He carried our shame and our sorrows, the figurative burn marks, so to speak, and ashes that happened to Jerusalem and the wall itself. Christ himself bore in his own body our sins and our shame. He is himself, though, our protector, our strong tower, and our mighty fortress. And he proved to be as much by laying down his life for us, making an atonement for sin upon the cross once for all time. And just as that wall of Jerusalem was rebuilt by God's own hand to secure and to safeguard God's people, us, Jesus himself arose from the dead bodily, rising and ascending on high, trampling over death by his death and leading us to glory one day. In other words, Jesus Christ himself is the very fulfillment of these things in Nehemiah 12. He is our strength, the better wall. He is our song, but he's also our salvation. And so surely beyond the singing of God's people here in Nehemiah 12, verses 44 through 47, we see that Christ himself, God, who inhabits the praises of his people, is here seen as the chief singer over us. As you look again at Nehemiah 12, verses 44 through 47, you'll see that as the people dedicated themselves to the Lord their God, they recognized that he alone was the covenant maker and covenant keeper. They made sacrifices and gave their tithes and offerings unto the Lord as a responsive act of worship. For he alone was mighty to save and deliver them from bondage. He had proven this again to them as he called and gathered them out of their fear and dread among the nations. And so too, to this very day, Christ is calling the nations to himself, his people from all around the world. This people here in our text themselves dedicated afresh to the Lord their God. They devoted themselves to the reading of the law and the writings of the Old Testament. And this was very evident in Nehemiah 12 in particular. For instance, verse 46 says this, For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In other words, the people here in Nehemiah's own day had not only embraced the law of God for what it was, but they took anew upon themselves the covenantal obligations that were there as well. As we have seen earlier in the book, they embraced the whole of the covenantal promises from the very beginning of the Old Testament to the end. They embraced not only the law, but also the writings, the songs, the Psalms of David and Asaph in particular, names that you might have caught earlier as we were reading the text. And among the lot of them, among those Psalms of David and Asaph, I am most certain that one of them that they would have sung as they were climbing up to the wall and pronouncing this gospel in advance would be Psalm 87. Psalm 87 is in many ways a direct fulfillment of this very occurrence in, in history. And Psalm 87 
proclaims from the very perspective of a ransomed and gathered people the following words. Psalm 87 says this, On the holy mount stands the city that he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish it. The Lord records as he registers the people, This one was born there. And singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. You catch how that dovetails so well with our passage this morning in Nehemiah 12. See, songs of praise and thanksgiving overcame that very people of Israel in that day. Their very being as both individuals, but also as a whole covenant community, was filled with the joy of the Lord. And they knew him to be their gladness. For he had established his law again in their midst and proved himself to be their chosen portion and their cup. The Lord himself had made him known as the path of life, the fullness of joy, and pleasure forevermore. And one day, in the not-too-distant future, the King in all of his glory, Christ Jesus our Savior, would come and would enter through those very gates that those people themselves had rebuilt from scratch. See, one day, those the heads of those ancient doors would be lifted up and the king in all of his glory would come in and ascend the hill of Jerusalem to Calvary, bearing the sins of his people. The very object of our worship would be proven to be Christ himself, who is both Lord and Christ, as we know from the word. Soon the very Son of God, to whom all of those sacrifices and the types and the shadows that they were experiencing even in this time would meet their fulfillment. They would understand Christ as the fulfillment of all of that, both the end and the meaning of these very things. And soon the very path of life, who is himself our pleasure forevermore and joy everlasting, would make himself known as such. So church, as we conclude this morning, I cannot help but think of what this kind of exuberant vibrant worship would look like if we were to treasure in our own hearts Christ as Lord for who he is. How could we not experience the peace of God all the more when our heart's affections, the very deep seat of our emotions, every part of our being finds their, their rest in him? And how could our countenance then not be lifted when we live in light of the smiles of our Father in heaven? How could our tongues, very much like these people in Nehemiah 12, not then boldly proclaim to the nations the magnitude of our God who saves when his song, his song of salvation is sung over us? So friends, may our joy in Christ and in Christ alone be made complete this very morning and let it, that joy, like ancient Jerusalem, uh, be heard from far away. Let's come before him in prayer. God, we praise you that you are most worthy of all reverence and honor and praise and glory. 
God, we thank you that you are the name above all names and that as we are about to bring this book of Nehemiah to a close next week, we realize that uh, if not for this uh, wonderful work of salvation that you've done, that we've read about here in Nehemiah, that foreshadowed what was to come through Christ himself, if not for your great salvation, we would have no cause for thanksgiving or celebration ourselves. And so, God, we desire to be a thankful people. We desire to be a people who, uh, who adores you and who revels in the goodness of you, our God, who saves, who holds fast through thick and thin, who keeps his covenant and who is steadfast in mercy, in mercy and faithfulness. Uh, Father, we are so grateful for you, and we ask that as we continue our worship, that you would cause us to have hearts that are just so uh, fixed and fixated upon you, our Christ. So we pray this in Christ's name alone.